Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself this question. Was it all worth it? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. All that I have done, all that I went through, all that I sacrificed, was it all really worth it? This may have been a question that was on the mind of Jacob as he was exiled, as it were, from his homeland and sent some 400 miles away. Was it worth it? Jacob and his mother have conspired to deceive both husband, father, and son. They've joined forces to steal from husband, father, and son, and they have succeeded. They both got what they set out to achieve. They got the birthright. They got the blessing. They have attained the inheritance that was entitled to the firstborn, and they have attained the covenant blessing that God gave to Abraham when he called Abraham out of Ur and into the grace of God. That covenant blessing that promised land, that covenant blessing that promised a nation, and that covenant blessing that promised that all nations would be blessed through a seed that would come through Abraham, Isaac, and now through Jacob. It was that covenant promise that was passed on to Isaac. And it was that covenant promise that Isaac was hoping that he would pass on to his son Esau, his favored son. But Rebekah... And Jacob have taken the blessing of Abraham literally right from under Isaac's nose. And now there are great consequences that they both must accept because of their, the tag team of their deception. Esau was burning with anger. He believed now that uh, he was not deceived once but twice by his younger brother and two times too many. Esau believed that the only course of action was revenge by death. He determined that the only comfort for his soul would be found in the murder of his brother. The Bible says that Rebekah tells Jacob in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 42, Esau was consoling himself with the thought of murder. Think about that phrase, consoling himself, comforting himself, uh, making himself at ease with this thought. When father is dead, then Jacob is a dead man. Well, we might imagine Esau, uh, the hunter, sitting with his hunting blade or sitting with his spear or sitting with his arrow. And as he sharpened the edge of those objects saying to himself he's a dead man you ever had revenge revengeful or vengeful thoughts that way I'll get them back I don't know the time I don't know the place and neither will they but they will get theirs 
Rebecca learns of Esau's fury and urges her son to go to her, to her homeland, to, to Haran. It is the place that Abraham and his family came to when they left Ur of the Chaldeans. She said, go there, my son. Go there until your brother's anger has subsided, and then I will send for you. You can come back home. And I think we can rightly assume that Jacob knew all too well the heat of his brother's fury. Jacob knew that Esau was a man of passion, a man who acted first and then reasoned and thought later. And as he prepared himself to escape his brother's fury, his mother once again, and, and really for the last time, manipulates her husband. She says to him in Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, essentially, if Jacob marries the kind of woman that Esau has married, then I will die. She uses what Abraham did for Isaac as leverage for Jacob. You all know very well that Abraham did not allow his son to choose from the daughters of Canaan, but rather he sent a servant to go find a daughter for Isaac from his homeland and from his country or from his peoples. He would not have his son intermarry with the pagan women there. And he would also not have his son marry or intermarry with those who were not of his family bloodline. So Isaac knew that Esau's choice of foreign women was sinful. And he calls his son Jacob forth and he sends him away to go and, and to find a daughter from his mother's side, which would also be from his father's side. Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, detail that sending away. And I wonder as Jacob departed and as he uh, said goodbye to his beloved aging father, and as he said goodbye to his beloved mother, I wonder if he asked himself as he walked away and turned, was this all worth it? He's deceived his father. He's made an enemy of his brother, and he possibly will never see his mother again. Sin cost us much, does it not? And I wonder if Rebecca asked herself the same question as the joy of her heart, her son, her, her favored one, her beloved son, as she watched him disappear into the distance. I wonder if she asked herself as well. Was it all really worth it? Brothers and sisters, again, it has been said many times, but sin will cost us more than we are often willing to pay in the very end. This morning, with God's help, we shall consider four points concerning Jacob's revelation while in isolation. Jacob's revelation while in isolation. And we will deal with this first point because I think it's necessary for us to deal with. Number one, Esau's folly. Esau's folly. This is found in verses 6 through 9. I, I'm not going to read it again, but verses 6 through 9. Esau has overheard Isaac's blessing to Jacob. He's also overheard Isaac sending Jacob away to, uh, to gain for himself a wife from the daughters or from the family of Abraham. 
We don't know where Esau was when he witnessed Isaac's blessing because he obviously was close enough to hear it. Where he was positioned, we don't know. But he was close enough to hear it. He was close enough to hear the blessing given to his deceptive brother. But there was also something else that caught his attention during that bestowing of blessing. And it was this. It was Isaac's charge to Jacob. You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Well, what had Esau already had done? He had already taken not one wife, but two wives from the daughters of Canaan. Jacob obeyed the fifth commandment. The Bible says he, he obeyed his mother and father. He honored his mother and father. And he sets out for Padam Aram. And Esau notices something. Verse 8. He saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father. Uh, Isaac has, or J Esau has finally for the first time recognized that what he has done has displeased his father. And his desire is to gain good graces back with his father. His desire is to gain blessing. He is trying to get back what he has lost. He's trying to earn the favor of God. What does he do? He sees that these women displease his father, and so Esau goes to Ishmael and marries, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. I wonder if you see what Esau is attempting to do. Esau was attempting to earn his father's favor. He is attempting to earn blessing that he has lost. He's trying to retrieve something that, that he believes has been stolen from him. But by what means is he, as, is he attempting to accomplish this? Is he attempting to accomplish the grace and favor of God by means of the flesh? He's once again showing that he's not a man of faith, but he is a man of flesh. He is not a man that walks by faith, but he will make his own destiny and hope that God will bless it. He was attempting to gain the promise of Abraham by means of the flesh. And his reasoning is faulty. Since the daughters of Canaan are displeasing to my father, I will go and gain a, a woman that my father will be pleased by. I'll go to the son of Abraham. Then my father will be blessed by me and he will give me a blessing. But which son of Abraham does he go to? He goes to the rejected son of Abraham, Ishmael. I overheard uh, the other night uh, someone speaking about the Muslim nation and how they were formed. Through Ishmael, through the rejected uh, son of Abraham. Not through the favored son of Abraham, of thinking that there is still some kind of blessing, even though Ishmael is connected to Abraham, and the Bible is expressly saying to us, no, there is not. Ishmael has been rejected by God. He is not the son of promise. And yet Esau, attempting to gain the blessing of God, goes to not the daughters of Haran, but to the rejected son of God. He's not the son of God. He's the rejected son of Abraham. 
the one who God has rejected. Does that make sense? Uh, Ishmael is not a son of God. I'll make sure I say that clear. Ishmael is the rejected son of Abraham, the one whom God has rejected. Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman. In the scriptures, Ishmael represents those who are the children of the flesh, not the children of the promise. In the scriptures, Ishmael is those who attempt to earn salvation by their own works, whereas Isaac is those who trust in the, in the grace and faith of God. Esau goes to that one who represents salvation by works that can never be attained. They are those who do not live by faith, but who live by their own works. Esau essentially is taking a gigantic swing and misses badly. Misses badly at the promises of God. He seeks to f- gain favor by marrying one of the daughters of the son who was not the promised son. And brothers and sisters, again, this is, may be for this church a, a moot point, but it must be said. Grace cannot be earned, nor can grace be paid back. Grace is not grace unless grace is free. Grace is necessarily unmerited. Grace is necessarily, uh, grace necessarily does not keep record of any debt. We cannot earn the favor of God. Paul explains to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And Paul wrote to the church of Ephesians, or the Ephesus church, in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not, a result, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I asked someone last night, do you believe that? They said, I do not know. Esau, nor you or I can earn the grace of God. There is no work that you and I can work that would ever be sufficient enough for us to earn God's grace. No, it has already been determined that the older will serve the younger. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Esau failed again. He failed to gain what God had determined not to give. And now our attention is turned to Jacob, who for the first time, maybe, finds himself in isolation. Number two, Jacob's isolation. And I will read this few verses here. uh, Verses 10 through 12. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. And I'll stop there. Just before Jacob was sent away, his father Isaac properly blessed him. This is found in verses 3 and 5. He gives to Isaac, or Jacob, the blessing of Abraham. Now we might ask this. Why did Isaac bless Jacob again? Did he not already give him the blessing of Abraham? And yes, he did. He did already give to Jacob the blessing of Abraham, but here's why he does it again. Because the first time he gave the blessing, he did so unwittingly. 
The first time he gave the blessing to Jacob, he actually thought he was giving it to Esau. He was giving it to Jacob without knowledge. He actually thought he was blessing his favorite son rather than Jacob. It would appear that Jacob, or Isaac, that Isaac has now yielded to the will of God. And he now gives his, listen to this, he gives his amen to what God has already determined for his younger son. He has no other choice but to give his amen to the will of God. He is saying what God has already said about Jacob. He is uh, confirming or amening what God has already determined for Jacob. And is not the blessing familiar? We've heard this blessing of being fruitful and multiplying before. Not only with Abraham, but this blessing was first given to the first man, wasn't it? It was first given to, to Adam. May God bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you. That blessing was then given to Noah, and then to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and now to Jacob. Isaac is giving his amen to the promise of God. That God would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and on the sand on the seashore. He is giving his amen to the promise of God that the land of his sojournings, the land of Canaan, would be that land that God has promised to Abraham and his, to, to his descendants, and it is that land that Jacob was then wandering into or wandering about in included in this promise though it is not recorded is also that great gospel promise that through the line of abraham and then jacob and now through or isaac and then now through jacob would come a seed that would bless the nations isaac has yielded to the purposes and covenant promises of god he's learned and listen to this even by way of sinful means, he was deceived. That God's will will be done in spite of all of our resisting. The Lord has even used sinful means, the deception of mother and son, for his own purposes. Now, this is an important question, and I don't think I considered it last time. Was it good that that son and daughter deceived uh, did god amen their deception not in the least their deception was a sin and even god would use that we said that last week that that the the worst crime done against any man in all creation was the crime against the sinless son of god he was crucified and yet god used even that sinful act to bring about many sons to glory God will even use the sinful actions of men to accomplish his purposes in this world. Isaac can only again, amen, what God has determined. And now he sends away his son, both to save his life and also for him to find a wife. And in that finding of a wife to further the covenant promises that would be progressed through that marriage. The scriptures tell us that Jacob departed from Beersheba and he made his way toward Haran. And I wonder at this point if you see what he is doing. Jacob was doing what his father Isaac was never allowed to do. 
leave. Jacob is doing exactly what his father Isaac was never allowed to do. To leave. Well, to leave where? To leave the land of promise. Abraham would not allow his son Isaac to leave the land of promise. His presence in the promised land was a perpetual sign that this land belonged to Abraham and his descendants. And now Isaac is sending Jacob away out of the promised land. We could rightly assume that Jacob was not what we would call a young man. That this may have been a new experience for him. Exposed to the elements of nature. What kind of man was Jacob? The scriptures describe Jacob as a man of the tent. Not a man of the open fields. Uh, Jacob enjoyed the shelter of home and was, by all biblical descriptions, a homemaker. Uh, Man, there is nothing wrong with being a homemaker. I'm a homemaker, which is why there's nothing wrong with it. He loved the sounds of people among the tents. I don't think he fancied the sounds of wild animals roaming about in the open fields. Esau may have been right at home in the open field under the starry night. But not Jacob. Jacob's sin has finally caught up with him. He's sent away from the promised land. He is exiled, as it were. And not only is he exiled, he is also isolated. Dear saints of God, isn't that exactly what sin does? Sin produces separation. And sin produces a break in fellowship with God. Young ones, what is sin? If your father or your mother were to ask you, what is sin? What would you say? Let, let me help you this morning. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the same question. What is sin? And here's the answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Young ones, here it is simply. Sin is breaking God's law. It's not coming under God's law. It's looking at God's law and saying no. Little ones, you know what that is like oftentimes when your parents tell you to do something and your, your head, hopefully your mouth doesn't say it, but I know that your head, because I was a kid once, whether you believe that or not, your head will often say to you, say no. Your mouth may not say so, but your head is often saying as you walk away, no, I don't want to do this. Right? Sin is saying to God, no. L- little ones and, and all, all of you who are here this morning, what, was, what is the result of saying no? The Westminster Catechism shorter, it answers that question for us. What's the misery of that estate? When you sin against God, you fell. And when you have fallen into that estate of disobedience to God, what is the result? The result is, first of all, this. All mankind, by their fall or by their sin, lost communion with God. When you sin against God, you lose communion, fellowship, relationship with God. 
Uh, little ones, when you disobey your parents, you will not have a good relationship with your parents. The Bible commands you to honor your father and mother. And here is the command with a promise that your life may be long. Jacob was not only far off from his beloved mother and father. I'm sure that in that open country, Jacob would have even saw Esau's face as a sight for sore eyes. He would have been happy to see him, maybe, maybe. But Jacob was not only far off from mother, father and brother. Jacob was far off from God. He was, as it were, dead in his sins and trespasses. We've doubled down on the the sin of Esau, but let us be clear about what the scriptures are intending for us to understand. Jacob was no better than Esau. Though he was the chosen one of God, he was no more lovely to God than Esau. Yes, God has loved him with an everlasting love, but it was not because of something lovely in Jacob. There was not something perfect or acceptable about Jacob that would cause God Almighty to bestow blessings on him that would literally bless the nations. We can look at Abraham and we might say, I can see why God would bless him. We can look at Isaac and say, I can kind of see why God would bless him. But I think if we looked at Jacob, we would say altogether, I have no idea why God would bless him. Well, let me say that they are all in the same boat. And we are all in the same boat. There is nothing good in you that would cause God to say, I like you. I think I like you. You want to come and, and, and live with me? I, I could tolerate this. This could work. That's not what God does when he draws us to himself. Uh, Speaking to a family member the other night who has this idea that you just need to be good to people. And that's good enough. And my response to them was this. You know you should be good to people because you're made in God's image. But even you being good to people will not be good enough to make you stand right before God. You are still in your sins. And I said to them plenty of times, my wife can attest to this, you're going to hell right now. As good as you think you are, you're on your way to a place that is separated from God because you are rejecting his son. Back to why we we are called by God, our confession, chapter 10, paragraph 2. The effectual call of God is of God's free grace Free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor any power or agency in the creature co-working with this special grace. There's nothing in you or I that God has foreseen or that God actually sees even now that makes God say, that causes God to say, I will give to them my special grace. Little ones, your parents will say to you, be good. Be good. Be good. Yes, you should be good. But you will never be good enough. There has only been one who has been good enough, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take this a step further. Do you want to know how lovely God thought of Jacob, or the kind of lovely thoughts God had of Jacob that would cause God to call Jacob? Listen to what God calls Jacob in Isaiah chapter 41. He says, 
Jacob, you worm. (laughs) If anybody had any question about how lovely Jacob was in the sight of God, they need only to go to the 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah where where God says to him, Jacob, you worm. Can I say to you that he has said the same of you and me? And he goes on to say, and you are also the smallest, Jacob. You are mostly the most insignificant in number, Jacob. It's not because of your loveliness or because of your power or your beauty that I have chosen you. You're a worm. And you're the smallest and most insignificant of all peoples. But he says, but fear not, worm. I am with you. And now here is the worm. My son likes worms. That's why he's laughing here in the front row. And now here is the worm. Crawling about, if you will, through the valley of the shadow of death. And I believe that's what we are to see in our mind's eye if we are to imagine Jacob. He is the sinner. He is the deceiver. He is the supplanter. He has supplanted all that are close to him. And his sin has resulted in his exile. He's sent away. From the land of promise. He, he is actually right on the edge. Just about to leave the land of promise. He's been cut off from family. But more importantly. He's been cut off from God. For all of his scheming. For all of his plotting. To attain the land of promise. Now he's forced to leave the land of promise. M- Moses labors to make this point. Toward this. At this point, And, and he. He says three times, I wonder if you see that there in verse 11, that he comes to a certain place, took a stone from that place, laid down his head in that place, that place or place three times in one verse. There's something significant about this place, which leads us into our next point. Number three, Jacob's revelation. This is the first spiritual, this is verses 12 through 5, 15. This is the first spiritual turning point in Jacob's life. If you were to ask Jacob, when did the Lord begin to work on your life, Jacob? When was the time or the day or the place when you noticed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ began to prick your heart like it never did before? He would undoubtedly point back to this place, this place called Bethel. It was that day when the Lord appeared to him and made him aware that he was, in fact, not alone. Jacob has been traveling. Some scholars say that up until this point that he has traveled at least 50 miles alone, on foot. And he travels until the sun begins to set and he can go no further. He comes to a certain place And it seems to be a mountainous place where there are many rocks. Uh, The rocks are plentiful. If you can imagine, as I did, uh, driving uh, east the 58, going toward Tehachapi, you start to ascend the mountains and you see rocks all over the place. Or going toward the, uh, the grapevine. And there are all of these rocks everywhere. Jacob came to such a place. There was something significant about this place, though. Unbeknownst to Jacob, the place where he was about to lay his head was the very place that the Lord appeared to Abraham. 
when he entered the land of Canaan. Jacob is about to exit the land of Canaan. And it's the very place that Abraham came to when he first entered the land of Canaan. In fact, some scholars say it could be that one of the rocks that Jacob used to rest his head upon was one of the very rocks that Abraham used to build an altar and worship the Lord with. And as he slept, the Lord interrupted his sleep with a grand vision. In his vision, he learned the most important lesson in all of his life. And you would do well this morning to learn this lesson if you have not learned it already. What he discovered was that his deepest problem in his life was not other people. And his relationship with them, he'd ruin all of those relationships. No, Jacob's deepest problem was his relationship with God. That he had sinned against a holy God. And because of his sin, the sin that he had in Adam and the sin that he was currently wallowing in and about. He was severed and separated from God because of that sin. Dear believer or even unbeliever, especially this morning and children, that includes you. Your greatest problem. Is not your broken relationship. With your mother or your father, sister or brother. Not in the least. Your deepest problem is that you have sinned against God. And because of that sin, you are separated from him and his wrath is upon you. You who have not trusted in Christ. Jacob was learning through this vision. That the reason why everything was in a disastrous mess in his life was because of his sin against a holy God. Notice also that Jacob did not lay down his head with a desire to seek after God. Jacob did not go to bed saying, I hope I dream about God. Jacob did not go to bed saying, Lord, how I love you and how I desire for you to transform my heart Jacob wasn't seeking after God. God was seeking after Jacob. God interrupted his sleep in the same way that he interrupted your and my sleep. We were not in pursuit of God when we were found by him. Correct someone anytime and every time they say, and then I found God. Ask them, was he missing? You were the one missing, not him. Jacob did not pursue God. We did not pursue God. There is no one who understands, Romans says. No one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. And yet, God in his mercy goes after this worm. God in his mercy seeks to give this worm understanding. God in his mercy turns this worm aside to do good. God interrupted his sleep. And weren't we all slumbering as well? Do you remember where you were when you were awoken? Some of us can remember pivotal moments in history, can't we? I can remember the moment when 9-11 hit. I was awoken by my sister. I thought she was going to tell me happy birthday. 
Instead, she tells me America's under attack. We're all going down. Look on the TV screen, and I can remember the time and the place and where I was. I can remember going to college later on that day, and we didn't even have class. Everyone was just watching TV. You remember when, where you were, some of you, when Kennedy was shot. Some of you remember where you were when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Some of you remember other pivotal moments when certain people were caught or when uh, walls come tumbling down Berlin, as I'm thinking. Where were you when God interrupted your sleep? Thank God that God does not wait for us to wake up in order for us to take interest in him. Thank God God does not wait for us to take interest in him before he develops his loving relationship and grace with us. Because we would have never been interested. God appeared to Jacob. I'm going to get back to this. So don't let this perplex your mind. God reveals to Jacob a ladder. Reaching from the top of heaven. To the foot of earth. And upon this ladder there are angels. And the angels are going up, ascending. And they are going down, descending. The Lord was revealing to Jacob that heaven and earth, they are not separate worlds, but that there is a ladder that links heaven and earth. The angels are going up. They are reporting to the Lord and they are coming down. They are doing the work of the Lord. This is a non-stop work. The angels are at work for their master. And then there is God who appears to Jacob. Let me not minimize this point because I've done it before. We may be in wonder, and you should be. We'll get to it. What's the ladder? What are these angels doing? Are they sitting next to me now? Don't miss this. The Lord appeared to Jacob. Sometimes we see that in the scriptures and we just read right past it. Pause. Why? Why should we pause? Well, has he ever appeared to you? Some of you might say yes, but you were on something at that time. I can say that to this crowd, this east side crowd. I couldn't say it in another part of town. You guys are okay though, huh? God appears to this man. To this worm. The Lord appeared to the swindler, to the supplanter, to this heel grabber. Why him? Why him? A man whose life has been marked by cunning and deception. One theologian said of Jacob, Jacob, a nasty piece of work. And yet, God calls himself the God of Jacob. And sometimes, even in isolation to the other two patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, just the God of Jacob. He identifies himself with Jacob. He says, Jacob, I have loved. And something like 25% of the book of Genesis is devoted, taken up by the life of Jacob. The story of Jacob, though, is full of hope for people like me. And I suspect maybe even people like you. If you are any much like a worm of a worm as I am, 
then maybe there is hope for you as well. Sin has left its twist in all of our characters, hasn't it? Because we were able to, unable to change ourselves, we look to examples like Jacob. And the God of Jacob becomes our only refuge and hope. Because if he can do such a thing for that worm, then he can do such a thing for me. The God who bothered with Jacob is the God who has bothered with you and me. He is the God of the weak. He is the God of the difficult. He is the God of the warped personality. And don't we have some? He begins with us where others have simply given up in despair. Fear not, O worm Jacob. I am the God who takes hold of you, he says. And God will take hold of this worm until he makes him a prince. He will take hold of this worm until he makes him a prince. He confirms his covenant with Jacob. He reveals the gospel to Jacob that all the families on the earth will be blessed through him. And here's the, 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 the thing that will be a, a crutch in Jacob's life for the rest of his life. That God would be with him through it all. God promises he would not leave Jacob until everything that he has said and promised was accomplished. Dear ones, what a glorious thing. Jacob will be given a limp later. And the only way that he will be able to walk, the only way that he will be able to take one more step, even after he finds that his beloved son has been, what he thinks, murdered. And the years that, he, that will go by of him aching in his heart over his beloved son, there will be one thing that will sustain that man, and it will be this. I will not leave you until everything I have said and promised is accomplished. Do you know that there is something said to you similarly? Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Once you are here, you can never not be here. But I will not leave you nor forsake you. How often in the future Jacob would recall these words. That God had covenanted not to leave him until everything was done. And Jacob had to learn in the future. That God who settled to make this man a prince would not settle for anything less even if it meant bringing him through immense pain, for dark days were ahead of him. And the only thing that would comfort him in the darkness would be this, I will not leave you until everything I have promised you is done. God has determined you will be holy. He's made the command, be holy. And everything that you go through in your life, all of the pain, all of the immense pain even, all of the dark days, they are being utilized by God to make you what he said you will be, holy. And he will not leave you till it's done.
The promises were made to Jacob. He would be with him, God. Give him land, give him offspring. The promised seed would come through him. And yes, these promises are given to Jacob, but they are uniquely also ours because they are fulfilled in Christ. God has reconciled us to himself. He will never leave us. He will bring us safely to heaven. And we will be there with him in that new creation where we will be his, we will be his people and he will be our God. We need to be reminded of these promises, don't we? You know these promises, and even as I'm saying them to you, you're saying, thank you for that reminder. You know these promises, and even as I'm saying them to, the, to you, your hearts are warmed. Because you need to be reminded that God has promised He will not leave you. That He will be with you. And it will not, He will not leave your side until it's done. The patriarchs were reminded of these promises over and over and over again. And let me say for myself, it is so easy to forget and to lose sight of these things. We need to hear these promises again and again and again. They're markers for us, aren't they? As we are making our way toward heaven's gate, making our way, as it were, toward the celestial city, there are always these markers. Keep going. You're almost there. It's just ahead of you. You ever see those when you're traveling, maybe on the five freeway, they have these big signs in and out. 20 more miles. Those of you who love in and out. 10 more miles to go. Then they have pictures of the, you're almost there. Pictures of the double-double or the three-by-one. Those of you who know. Or the secret menu that Pastor Isaiah knows all about. And then you're there. Now, I don't mean to compare the glory of heaven to in and out But I think the analogy is clear. As you're hearing this this morning, it's another marker for you. And it's saying you're almost there. And he's not going to let you go until you get there. So keep going. Jacob awoke and had the proper response of seeing the Lord. Here's the proper response of seeing the Lord. He was afraid. And this fear of God may have been the first time, no, let's say it is the first time that Jacob ever feared the Lord. It was his day of transformation. Fourth and finally, Jacob's transformation. This is verses 17 to 22, and we will close. The Lord reveals himself to Jacob. The Lord confirmed his covenant with Jacob, reveals the gospel to Jacob, vowed that he would not leave Jacob until all that he has promised was accomplished. Jacob arose, awoke and arose from this dream, and simultaneously arose from his former dead in sins and trespasses self. If you can imagine, if you will, Jacob rising and leaving the dead man there. Jacob arising from his dream, and as he does, the dead man remains, and he rises a new creation in Christ. Jacob, the man who was formerly a rotten worm, was now set on a course of righteousness to become Israel, the Prince of God. God would not leave him until the worm became a prince. And Jacob appropriately fears God. 
the scriptures are clear. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Deuteronomy 10, 12, now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And Luke 1, 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It amazes me. I am baffled to my core when I speak to an unbeliever and I say to them, what will you do when you stand before God one day? Well, it is what it is. I want to shake them violently and say, you are insane, man. You don't understand what you're saying. It is what it is. You will stand before God. And from everything I've seen in the scriptures, no one has been able to stand before God and stand. They all fall. They all fall in fear. They all come down on their face and say, I am not worthy to even look upon you. No one will be able to stand before God and say, hey, it is what it is. Jacob, for the first time in all of his life, fears the Lord. It is both a decree of God and it is one of the saving marks of grace that one fears God. He did not fear the Lord when he leveraged his brother's passion for his own gain. He did not fear the Lord when he took advantage of his father's poor health. But now, by the loving grace of God, Jacob fears the Lord and he is saved. Again, if you were to ask Jacob, when was the day when you knew that your heart had been changed from stone to flesh? He would undoubtedly point to this day. And I say to you again, can you recall the day when you rose anew and left your dead corpse behind? Perhaps for some of you, and perhaps for all of us, we would do well to recall that day. Perhaps for some of us, that day is a long and distant memory. Can you remember the first time you really began to fear the Lord? Is that fear still the same? Has it diminished? I urge you, dear ones, do not lose sight of your first love and the greatness with which you once saw God and the fear that you once had for him. The place where Jacob was visited by God would be erected as a holy site. It would be a place of memorial and possibly the location of the future tabernacle and temple. Jacob gives to that place the same name that his grandfather gave to that place, though it was called Luz. Jacob calls that place Bethel, the house of God. And he makes a vow. And it may seem like Jacob is once again bargaining with God, trying to strike a deal that if God's going to do this for me, then I will do this for him. Uh, and it's perfectly showing to us this. That God meets us ex exactly where we are. 
we are not yet what we will become. It was only the beginning of Jacob. Jacob still had, just because Jacob was now saved, doesn't mean that all of his uh, dealings and his cunning ways were then gone. You know some of those believers that you say, man, you still have a lot of hood in you still. Right? But God meets us where we are, but doesn't leave us there as you know. When we are saved, we are not at that moment what we will become. We are at that moment on the road of being sanctified to what we will become and what we are in the process of becoming holy before God. Some of us, we could confess, are further along than others, but we are all on our own road, but it is the same road. Uh, let me say it this way. We are all on the same road, but just at different paces maybe. But we are all on the road to holiness. That is what God is making us. Jacob commits a tenth of all that he has to the Lord. And we could do an excursus on tithing. We're not going to do that right now. But let me just say this. Tithes are a proper response to the grace of God wrought in our heart. Grace begins to work in us. And he sets about to make this worm into a prince. And now as I come to the end of the sermon, I know some of you may be wondering, and Ralph is not here, and I know he would be wondering, what about the ladder? Tell me about the ladder. I'm not going to tell you about the ladder. I'm going to let Christ tell you about the ladder. Go to John chapter 1 and verse 50. Brother Ralph, if you're listening, this is for you, brother. That's a joke. It came about one day when Philip found Nathaniel. He would be a disciple of Christ and urged him to come and see this man from Nazareth who told him all of these things. When Nathanael appears to the Lord, the Lord sees him coming and he says to him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Brothers and sisters, if you would just for a moment, let me ask you this. Why does the Lord Jesus Christ say to Nathanael, You are an Israelite and you are not a deceiver? What kind of man was Israel before he was Israel? He was a cunning deceiver. But this man is known by Christ. And, and how is he known by Christ? Uh, and, and the deceiving part is going to connect to what we're talking about. How is he known by Christ? Because Christ not only saw him when he was under the fig tree, but Christ has seen and known him before the foundations of the world. Nathaniel's amazed. He says to him, Rabbi, verse 49, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answers him and says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And really what Jesus is saying, that's all it took. That was easy. But then listen to what the Lord says. You're going to see greater things. And what are those greater things? I say to you, you will see the heavens opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus at this moment is giving us a perfect interpretation of Jacob's vision and even a perfect interpretation of Genesis chapter 28. He is saying by connecting, you are not a deceiver like the other Israelite, Jacob. 
which makes us say he's speaking about Jacob. Well, what about Jacob? Nathaniel, you will see great things like Jacob saw. What did Jacob see? He saw a ladder. He saw the Lord. He saw angels ascending and descending. But do you notice that there's something missing from what Christ has said and what Jacob has saw? I wonder if you noticed it. There's a ladder missing. But it's not missing. For the angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. And the ladder is the son of man. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is that ladder. What does he say? You will see the angels ascending and descending on what? On the sun. He is the ladder. What does that mean? We have said before that there are not two worlds, but that there is a, a world that has been brought together or bridged together by that ladder. There is only one man that could ever reconcile you to God. He is the mediator. He is the door. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is Christ alone. Christ is that ladder that connects you to God the Father. Without the ladder, without Christ, you and I would be lost for all eternity. Christ is not only the ladder, but Christ would be stretched out upon that ladder. And he would give his life so that we might be saved from our sin. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jacob saw. He saw the ladder. He saw Christ. And he woke and he was in fear. And he was saved. Nathaniel would not only see or not only read of what Jacob saw, but he would see it for himself. You will see greater things. What are those things? You will see the ladder crucified on that ladder. And you will see that ladder raised to life, drawing men to God through this perfect and finished work. It's what was done for Jacob. It's what was done for Nathaniel, and what is what was, it is what was done for you and I who sit here today. Christ the ladder. Your Bible may say Jacob's ladder. He is all of our ladder. He is all of our ladder. He is the only way that any of us can be saved. It is Christ the ladder. And we are saved through him. Brothers and sisters, I pray that that made sense to you. And I say to you again, there is only one way by which men can be saved and it is through Christ alone. Let us go to the ladder and ascend to him who is our only way of salvation. Let us pray.